Hey, what's going on, CNFers? This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, and I am your host, Brendan O'Mara. You know who was one of my favorite baseball players growing up? Fred McGriff. Fred McGriff was a six foot three first baseman who tallied 2,490 hits and 493 home runs. He was also born on Halloween, so that's cool. Anyway, <laughs> I think I'm out of riff jokes. I think that's the last one I have in the chamber. So, like I said, anyway, this week on the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, I lassoed Dinty Moore who is a teacher, editor, founder of Brevity Magazine, and whose latest book, The Story Cure, a book doctor's pain-free guide to finishing your novel or memoir, published by 10 Speed Press, is out. Retails for $14.99. Go buy it. I get no kickback, so take that. Maybe the biggest takeaway from this episode is Dinty's attitude when receiving feedback, and the gift of writing many, many drafts. But I'll let you be the judge. There's just so much wisdom packed into this episode that uh, I'm just eager for you to get to it. So lastly, need reviews. We're starting to gain a little bit of momentum, but reviews would be killer. Would you be so kind as to review the podcast on iTunes or anywhere else? But iTunes is sort of the big one. Um, share share this episode with a friend and or subscribe. Hey, thanks for listening. Enjoy this interview with Dinty Moore, you're, you're episode forty nine. Right? You know you're the director of the creative writing program at Ohio University. You know you founded Brevity. You've written a dozen books. How do you do all that? How do you how do you manage and how do you how do you structure your life so you can be that sort of productive across so many different uh sort of subgenres all within all within the the writing community yeah well thank you for putting such a positive spin on it there <laughs> are people who, who might say i work too much uh i'm a little bit too work focused i mean it is a matter of priorities i don't i, I get up in the morning and you know my job is as a writer editor teacher depending on which one is most pressing but i don't uh I don't spend a lot of time lingering over breakfast. I get right to work. I almost always eat lunch at my desk. Um, I see some of my colleagues go for long, leisurely lunches, and I think, boy, that must be fun. But <laughs> I never quite, I never quite do it. So it's really just, you know, time management and stubbornness and focus. And there has to be, of course, you know, if you're willing to spend that much that much time with it, there has to be on some level like a deep love of the language and and the work as well. So, like, where does where does that come from? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess from years and years and years of of reading and writing. But uh, unlike a lot of other writers, I look back to my childhood. Um, we didn't have books around the house. I don't know that I was read to as a kid. Um, I have no memory of that. I, my mom loved newspapers. So I did, you know, early on start reading newspapers, which is very different than, you know, novels and literary works. My mother's, you know, focus on, on, 
on what was in the newspaper made me want to read the newspaper. Eventually, I wrote for newspapers. Um, how I got from there to the kind of writing I do now, or writing books uh, that you know that focus on literary writing, I don't really know. Hmm. It just seemed to be. I fell in love with language somewhere along the way and thought, boy, these moving words around in a sentence, every time you move them, the sentence changed a little bit. And, and that, you know, some people get bored by that. I was just fascinated. And I still am. I was, you know, revising for about two hours this morning, revising a, a 4,000 word article I'm working on. And uh, I just got lost in it. It's like, man. I just changed that one word and this paragraph is so much better. Or I just moved that sentence up two paragraphs and the thing suddenly makes much more sense. I, I, I get excited about that. Yeah, you, you allude to that in the story cure too, that like once you're able to get the 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 clay down and that, you know, the the revision part and the shaping of all those words is is a big you get a big charge out of that. And uh, I think maybe a good a, a good chunk of that book is getting writer, re, uh, writers to that point so that they can enjoy that revision process that you've done a good chunk of that first work, but now it's time to start shaping it for someone other than yourself. So like, uh, what, what about your sort of writerly constitution really appeals to that revision process versus maybe the generative process? Um, good question. Uh, I, I hate, I hate the, I hate the blank page because it's like, mm -hmm. what am I going to put down here? How am I ever going to come up with anything coherent and interesting? Um, I think one of the strengths, I th I'm going to count this as a strength. I don't mind the fact that my early drafts and my second drafts and my third drafts and my fourth drafts are clearly lousy. You know, when I go in and, and find horrible sentences and horrible paragraphs, I don't think, oh God, I hate myself. I'm a bad writer. I think, you know what? I can actually fix this. You know, this is one of those few times in life where you get a second chance. So um, the idea that I have an editor coming back at me and saying, no, this just isn't very good enough. You've got to work on it harder. Or as I get older and, and, and more experience as a writer to have the editor in my brain say, you know, this isn't just this just isn't good enough. This is just really kind of flat. You need to work on it harder. That doesn't hurt my feelings. It makes me kind of excited to get back in there and, and start moving words and paragraphs and sentences around again. So that's what I mean about ego. It's like my my feelings don't get hurt if, if something's not working quite yet. In fact, I expect that. When I point it out to myself or an outside reader or editor points it out to me, you know, I don't I don't curl up into a little ball. I go, yeah, cool. Okay, let me see what I can do. Right. And how long do you think it took you to reach that, that point of uh, it takes a certain a certain degree of confidence to to say like you know I'm I'm my worth isn't tied to these early drafts and and, and to then be able to see it for what it is and then and then be able to work through and revise and not have your ego attached to the as Anne Lamont might say the shitty first drafts yeah so um, like how how long did it take you to to sort of work develop that muscle another odd answer is I think I had it at the beginning hmm. um, I mean I'm I'm very insecure about many, many things. If you have three hours, I could start listing them right now. <laughs> but this particular insecurity, it's like I remember, you know, from, well, the first fiction workshop I ever took, um, short story writing, I brought my, my, my lovely, wonderful, what I thought was finished, uh, delightfully funny story in. And the, and the professor, David Bradley, um, 
just took it apart piece by piece by piece and, you know, referred to it with in, in very unflattering, uh, profane terms and, and, and found, you know, found flaws in every sentence and inconsistencies of character on every page. And ultimately it was a gigantic cliche of a story. And I was like, man, that is so cool. Hmm. He, look at what he did. He really understood, you know, what's going on there and how to fix it. And I got really excited and, and I mean, he was a very formative part of my writing process. I, I not only wanted to fix the story that he had pointed out for in a 45 minute uh, diatribe was, you know, failing in every category. But I, I remember leaving, I was in Philadelphia that I remember leaving that classroom thinking, man, I want to learn to do what he does. Mm. You know, I want to learn how to, how to see that stuff in my writing and other people's writing and, and, you know, that led eventually, eventually, not right away, to me going to graduate school and, and trying to train myself to be able to see inside of a story and not just say, you know, I really loved that or hmm, I didn't like it so much. But to really, like a mechanic looks into a car engine, really be able to look at the moving parts and figure out, you know, what's working and what isn't working and where the oil is leaking. So how can, because clearly this is something that can be learned. So... And and it was something that that your professor uh, enlightened you to. Uh, so how can a novice a novice writer reader sort of cultivate that that degree of uh, insight and X ray reading, as Roy Peter Clark might call it? Yeah. Um, like how, how can that be learned? Uh, even if you're even if you're a step above a novice, to be a better reader, which ultimately makes you a better writer. Uh, practice. Um, mm -hmm. Not the first one to ever say this, but if I'm reading somebody else's work, I mean, even people I worship like Joan Didion, sometimes I read for pleasure, but, you know, but I've trained myself to, to read, well, to read like a mechanic. It's like, okay, this is so good. That paragraph was so powerful. I stop, I go back, I look at it and say, now why? What is it she did? You know, it's often what's left out. Mm. It's you know, it says she gave you chi. In this case, Joan Didion gives you just enough that you that you in your own you the reader are putting things together in your head and and little fireworks are going off in the back of your brain. She's leading you right up to it and then letting you realize it rather than you know hitting the reader over the head, telling you, over explaining, which sort of kills the moment. Yeah. So I so I you know and I read other people's work, masters or. You know, I'm a, I'm a professor, so I read some students who haven't quite mastered uh, how a sentence works yet. Um, you know, I stop and think, why? What is broken here? Or why is this such a good sentence? What is this doing um, that, you know, that makes me smile or, or stiffens my spine as I read? And eventually I learned to do that with my own work. You know, it's like I'm not reading it as like, well, is it good enough? Do I like myself? You know, do I suck? Am I a writer? Should I, I'm actually, you know, kind of dispassionately thinking, okay, let's look at this paragraph. Here's what's working. Here's what's not working. What if I push this word over here? What if I just take that middle sentence out? What if I move the last sentence to the beginning of the paragraph? Um, it's like, a, you know, it's like a puzzle. Or, or well, David Bradley also, the, the professor I, I referenced earlier, um, also sort of talked about child play and, you know, sitting in the sandbox and just pushing sand around and making a sandcastle. Um, you know, that, that kid who's doing that isn't, 
isn't worried about getting published someday or getting tenure someday or becoming famous someday. He's just playing with sand because it's fun. And, and I try to get into that mood with words and sentences. Yeah, I, I try to talk about that a lot with people about maintaining a degree of play and fun with uh, in the process of writing because there's this stigma that you know you should be this tortured writer and this tortured artist but like in reality it's if you're if you're having fun and just playing with the the magic of these words and the magic of the language fact is like it's going to be a great experience for the reader and why i mean sure there is going to be some tough subject matter you to wrap your head around it's not all going to be you know a frolic in the field of flowers but it's really? uh, yeah <laughs> imagine that but yeah. yeah but if you like you said like just maintaining that that degree of play and that childlike view of it it, it makes for a much better process and will probably unlock a deeper reservoir of your taste if you will sure i mean i don't want to be Susie sunshine like you said there are days that are just horrible i'm just yeah. sitting there pushing my pencil or pushing the delete key and thinking, Oh my God, I just don't have anything here. There are lousy days like that, but you can't live there right. um, for very long. And I also agree with what you just implied, which is if you're, if you're fascinated with the subject you're writing about, if you're having fun, especially if you're trying to write something humorous, if you're, you know, just engaged with the process, it, it comes off the page, it comes off the sentences and the reader's, the readers sense that, whereas if you're slogging through, you know, deep in insecurity, you know, the reader's going to sense that too. It's a little bit like, you know, a little bit like acting. Um, you know, you've seen, you see an actor on the stage who's just inhabiting that character. And there's something so, so magnetic about that. You can't take your, your eyes off him. Um, and you see an actor who's kind of stiff and unsure and, and nervous and anticipating and it's like, yeah, it's kind of hard to watch. Mm. Now, for someone who who edits and writes so much, sometimes the editor hack can like creep into the process a little too early. And I, I wonder how you divorce the two, especially in your generative first draft phases. So you're not editing as you're writing. You're just letting it loose, having that play and then putting the editor hat on later. Once you have that mold of that ball of clay that you yeah. reference in the story cure. So how do you, how do you um, navigate those two poles? Yeah. I, mean, I do edit a little bit in the first draft. I mean, you know, I, actually, I think I'm just correcting typos because I don't type very well. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm trying to make sense. You know, in a first draft, it's not just spewing or stream of consciousness. But you know, if I if I type a bad sentence and it's not really that interesting, I don't even go back and delete it. Sometimes I just type a new sentence, hoping you know I just layer on all these sentences. And, and like many writers, if I wake up on a Thursday morning and you know I'm talking about the very very first draft of something, if I wake up on a Thursday morning and and type type write two and a half three pages of something. You know, by the next morning, maybe a half of the page, you know, remains. And I get up, I read it, I delete all the boring stuff, and there's half of a page. And then I start, you know, building up some sort of structure around that to see where it goes. And and then I have a new four pages, you know, at the end of the day. And the next day I go in and I look at it and say, yeah, well, you got about a page worth of interesting material there. And even that's not that interesting. You know, so you're always kind of... I mean, there's so many different metaphors, but it's sort of a, a, pro, a, a process of carving away or building up the clay until you 
you know, until it starts to look like an elephant or starts to look like whatever it is you think you're trying to make a, a sculpture of. Am I answering your question? Not really. Oh, yeah. No, I, absolutely. It's, 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 I know what phase I'm at. It's like if it's really early on and it's not quite making sense yet, I have a voice in my head that I've cultivated that says, just hang in there, Dinty. Just keep working at this. You know, one of these days you're going to come in, look at it and go, oh, wait, wait. Now I see what it's about. Um, I also know that 20, 30 drafts in or certainly if I'm on deadline of some sort, you know, there's a point at which I have to put on, a, on my editor's hat and say, you know, stop playing around here. Yeah. Figure out what it is you're talking about. And I also, my, 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 I think my students hate me. I'm not sure. But I think <laughs> they do. They hate me for this. Uh, I have my mean New York editor hat. You know, and I use it on them, but I also use it on myself. It's like, okay, I'm mailing this off or nowadays emailing this off in three days. I put that mean, edit, mean New York editor hat on and just say, Come on, come on. Is that a good opening or you just kind of fell in love with it, but it's not really working? Come on, come on. Is that the best analogy you can make here? Wait a minute. You know, look at all those flat verbs. Is that I'm aware of where I am in the process and sort of take on different. I use different inner voices on myself, on my own work as I'm, as I'm working my way up the hill. So as you were. As you were developing as a, as a young writer, and like as like you said, you grew up reading newspapers, not necessarily books and literature. Um, Actually, let me add something else. I, I grew up. It was my mother and my two sisters. My dad wasn't around, um, so I'd sit by the mailbox, which kind of came into the front porch of the house, the enclosed front porch, and the mailman would push the mail through, and it would be like some bills and ladies' home journal and 17, and Red Book. And I, I kind of grew up reading ladies' magazines or women's magazines and the newspaper. It's like I was hungry. It's like whatever there was to read, I wanted to read it. Um, yeah, yeah. And how do you um, – at what point did you start to graduate towards some of the – some of the literature that you like reference in, in a lot of your work, like, especially in the story cure, like at what point did those start to creep into your vernacular? Yeah. I'm also the school library. I mean, in mm -hmm. grade school, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about second, third, fourth grade. These are very simple books, but I kind of got turned on to the fact that there's a whole world of books out there. Um, and then later on in grade school, certainly high school, I know that I fell in love with Dickens somewhere in high school. I mean, if you want to go towards the, the more literary work, you know, Dickens spoke to me the minute I, I picked him up. Um, something about the humor. Same thing with Vonnegut. Uh, the, you know, the day I discovered Vonnegut, uh, I read all the way through uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and then just went to the library and said, you know, give me everything Vonnegut ever wrote and went through them one at a time. Yeah, I had that similar well, experience library. of Vonnegut. Yep. Libraries, you know, libraries were a revelation to me. I also started reading, you know, nonfiction books, but not, not uh, Orwell or literary nonfiction. I was like, I, I wanted to read every book about the Marx Brothers that had ever been written. And you know, Harpo's Harpo's autobiography is actually a very memoir. It's actually a really wonderful book. Because um, I wanted to read every book on W. C. Fields ever written. I just got, and I wanted to read every book about aquarium fish. Um, you know, it's just like I got, I, I wanted, you know, to fill my brain with information and libraries. You know, I get on these little kicks, which is what I like, love about being a writer, because you can still do that. It's like I'm not, I'm not filling out the same insurance forms every day for the rest of my life, 
as a job. It's like I get I get excited about something and I say I'm going to write an essay about it. I get obsessed with something and I say I'm going to write a short story about that. I get really obsessed with something and I say you know I'm going to try to figure out if there's a book there. Um, you know that's a real gift. Yeah. Um, just pursue your 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 fascinations and curiosities and obsessions that way. And somebody and somebody say yeah good job. I'm glad you did that. And at the the beginning of the story, Cure, you spent a lot of time uh, in uh, valuable time right at the start talking about the the heart story, and you know maybe what Tom French might call like the engine, and yeah. um, and how important is that to be to to try to flesh that out as early as possible, uh, but also because sometimes it, it takes maybe a hundred pages, maybe more to really get to the heart of it, to maybe to not get stumped by the idea of I haven't found my heart yet, but I still have to keep going. So yeah. How do you, how do you cultivate that? Um, for, you know, heart story is simply, what is this really, really about, you know, in fiction, a guy moves to Indianapolis and something happens and something else happens. And then, you know, there's some, he's in danger. So that's the plot, but what's it really about, you know, which is often something like regret or something like, you know, uh, deep insecurity, something about, you know, working out uh, a problem from the past. That's, you know, that's what heart story is. I do a better job in the book, I hope, than I did just then. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a real gift if you sit down to write something, fiction or nonfiction, memoir or novel, short story or essay. It's a real gift if you sit down and you kind of you know what it is that's driving you. Um, but I often don't. I often kind of, as I've, as I've said earlier in this interview, I'm just sort of fiddling around trying to find that, that nugget, you know, that nugget of something that's got the power in it or the, that, that part of the story, that sentence, it's got the electrical vibration running, running beneath it. Um, it's again, you know, uh, I'm going to turn the question around a little bit and say the people I know who fail as writers, you know, students who they can write a sentence. They're smart. They have a great vocabulary, but they're not, just never going to make it as a writer. It's because they lack patience mm. or they lack stubbornness. It's like they write something. Well, this is it. This is how good it is. And that's, you know, what do you think? Um, whether it's a matter of not knowing what the heart of your story is or what your heart story is right away, or whether it's a matter of having to revise your, your sentences and paragraphs 47 times, which I have to, um, before I'm satisfied with them, you have to be, you have to be patient. You can't just expect, um, it all to come out or to know it all or to see it all. You know, when you sit down to write, you don't wake up in the morning and think, boy, I'm going to write a 10 page short story and I know everything about it. You know, that's not first of all, that's boring because mm -hmm. you need to be open to discovering something as you write, but it just doesn't happen that way. So, if you, whatever it is that isn't quite working in your draft today, whether it's a draft of an essay, a draft of a book length memoir, a draft of a novel, whatever it is that isn't working, you have to be patient. You have to kind of keep working despite the, working on other parts of the book, despite the fact that you haven't quite, you know, figured out what the heart of the book is yet. And you have to be patient uh, and trust that you're going to get there eventually. Yeah, in speaking with uh, Mary Heather Noble and Kim Kankowitz for essays that they wrote for Creative Nonfiction that won prizes, Editor's Prize, and some other contests, specifically the, those particular essays that won, 
essentially became were like they put in the drawer. They had that patience because there was just something that didn't crystallize quite yet. They knew something was there, but they just ah, there was just something missing. In, in Kim's case, she needed a certain prompt. It was like a joy prompt. And then she was able to shoehorn this essay that she had had for a while, and it, then it coalesced and crystallized. So it's it's just sometimes the drawer may, might be the best place for a piece of writing and just to let it gestate there for months or years sometimes. That, that's worked for me countless times. So what do you think is the the biggest problem you see when you've got your book doctor hat on, when you're trying to diagnose somebody's uh, somebody's writing, like, in whatever stage of the process they're in, like what, what things do you typically see among people trying to, you know, bring something that's of publishable quality? Right. Attachment, holding on, holding on to, to ideas, scenes, characters, um, metaphors, you know, it's hard to let go of. It's hard to say, boy, I worked on this, this part of this book for three weeks and guess what? Boom. All I learned in those three weeks is that the character doesn't actually go there. Mm. It's a memoir. You know, I worked on this this scene from my childhood for three weeks trying to bring it to life. And then, you know, all I realized was, boom, this scene from my childhood doesn't really actually belong in this book. Um, so, you know, the manuscripts that are brought to me, short or long, the biggest problem I, I find, you know, to be very general is there's a lot of material in there it might be well written but it's not taking the reader anywhere it's either off subject you know subject sounds a little too directive when you talk about literary writing but it's it is not in the universe it's either is not in the universe of the story it doesn't fit organically with the story even if it's true um or it's repetitive it's telling it's telling the reader showing the reader illustrating for the reader beautifully something that the reader already knows and the story's got to move on you've got to take us someplace else and uh it's sort of like piggybacking uh on on that and also the heart story is this the this invisible magnetic river that you write about which is this great metaphor of how to pull people along for the story however long or broad it may be and i was wondering if maybe you could like talk a little about little bit about that and how you came to that metaphor and uh, what it means to you and how you sort of implement that in, in a lot of your teaching and coaching. Yeah, the, it, it started with teaching because um, my students would come in and they learned this as I did, you know, from their high school English teachers. They'd come in and say, what is this? We're talking about a workshop now where the students are writing their own stories. In this case, it was a fiction workshop. You know, and they'd say, well, what is the theme of this? And I'd be scratching my head thinking, you know, and I'd probably use that term too. In fact, I did in my early teaching, but I sort of scratching my head thinking theme, you know, it doesn't, doesn't theme apply to dead white European authors, you know, from the 17th century isn't theme, you know, what Melville did with Moby Dick. That's an awfully big thing to be talking about in a sophomore college creative writing class. You know, this, these, these guys just need to learn to write a story, not, not a deep theme. So, you know, I, I just kind of walked away from that term and and that sort of morphed my students, you know, have their own language. Like, what does this story mean? Or what do you often hear this in poetry? 
classes, excuse me. What does this poem mean? As if it was just a riddle to be solved or as if the reader was a code breaker. And I was very dissatisfied with that. Well, a story doesn't mean. A story takes you someplace and it's alive and you feel that person's life. It doesn't mean something. You, you feel something as a reader. Um, so I struggled around and I came up with my own metaphor, which is, you know, the invisible magnetic river. That's, that's what holds a story together. That's when it's, you know, that's what all the parts of a story, fiction or nonfiction have to attach to this invisible magnetic river somehow, not a theme and not a meaning, um, necessarily not a moral, which is, you know, only, only, only useful in religion class. Um, but an invisible magnetic river of emotion. So it's invisible. You don't want, as I said earlier, you don't want to hit the reader over the head with it. You don't want to say, this is what my story means, because that's as dull for the reader. Mm -hmm. um, it's magnetic because it's all the various moving parts of, of your fiction or nonfiction narrative um, should be leaning towards it or being pulled, magnetically pulled toward it. Otherwise, it doesn't belong there. Um, that scene or that character or that image or that moment that you're recounting on the page. If it isn't pulling, you know, if it isn't in a magnetic pull relationship with this underground river of emotion, then it doesn't belong in the book or it doesn't belong in the story or it doesn't belong in the essay. Um, that's the magnetic part of it. So invisible, magnetic, and then river. And the thing I like about the river metaphor is, you know, rivers are very strong. Rivers are pulling forward. You know, just with great power, they have these currents that just, but they don't go in a straight line. You know, rivers move, they meander, they slow down at certain places because, you know, it widens, they speed up at certain places because you hit the rapids. Um, so in terms of storytelling, you know, I want the story always to be moving forward, but it's not like you're on a, on a train and every single track, you know, is absolutely straight locked in from beginning to end i, I like the meandering mm -hmm. uh, sense of a river when i'm on a river you know when i'm actually on a river in a canoe i like the meandering sense of a river well i like it in, in in stories that i read as well as long as it's moving forward the river doesn't ever stop and just go sideways for no good reason it's always moving forward yeah, and I think um, uh, the physicist, I think his name, he came up with a Bernoulli's principle or something. And it's it's basically like when you constrict something, it will speed up. And if you widen it, it kind of slows down. So it's kind of like putting your thumb over the over the, over the the hose and it starts right. spraying out. So it's like with the river metaphor, the more you narrow it and narrow its focus, like the pace picks up. So right. like you can just keep going with that. And it's just a, such a great – great little great thing to play with in terms of like visualizing where your story is going so it's like you've you've really hit upon a really really sort of resonant note there by using that as the metaphor i think oh thank you thank you i'm i'm pleased to hear that yeah yeah and like you or you reference on like tobias wolf and this boy's life and cheryl strayed and and how, you know, their stories on the surface seem about, you know, just, you know, this hike on the Pacific Crest Trail or, you know, just growing up in a sort of a very turbulent family. But it's ultimately it always come it has to be a uh, it has to connect on a different different level. And, um, you know, it's because it's not if it's done well, Cheryl Strayed's story is 
it's not hers anymore. It, it the reader overlays their experience. So like with as a as a writer, how do you think you can balance the writing of a story for yourself and then ultimately have a re, an end product where the reader is in mind too? Because there's kind of that balancing act. I'm very reader focused. I'm very much aware at every stage, even though you know at beginning stages, early drafts, I'm I'm writing bad sentences and giving myself permission to write bad sentences and and writing paragraphs that go nowhere and giving myself permission to do that because that's part of the explorer exploring process, you know, trying to find what this is really about or where the words are that are going to bring this to life. But even at that stage, I'm aware that, you know, this is going to have to interest somebody somewhere other than me just because, of, you know, I write a lot of memoir, a lot of nonfiction, just because it happened to me, which inherently makes it interesting to me because it's my life doesn't mean anybody else is going to be interested. Right. So I'm very hyper aware of the audience. And as I get into the middle drafts and as I'm moving towards, you know, this thing's going to be done in a few weeks. If I just, you know, keep working on it, I get really aware if there is an audience, somebody's going to have to read this. How am I going to keep that audience awake? What possible value is Brendan going to get by spending a half an hour of his time reading this? Um, it's a conscious process. More, it becomes more and more conscious the further along I am or the closer I feel like I am to the finish line. But I mean, I read it out loud to myself and think, you know, okay, where is Brendan or where is my imaginary reader? getting bored here mm. what, what, what what's on this page that that makes him want to read the next page what, what what is my reader what is my reader learning here and even more importantly what is my reader becoming curious about here so that when she gets four or five pages further in and i'm and, I, and she starts to get the answer to her questions there's that pleasurable moment of of what a lot of writing does which is raises questions in the reader's mind and then and then slowly begins to answer them or bring the reader towards an answer so it's it's um i'm i'm struggling it's almost like conducting an orchestra mm. uh, and i when i get at that stage it's like i'm i'm really thinking about what the experience is for the reader at at each paragraph and where the where I'm going to lose the reader out of pure boredom or confusion or the reader just doesn't care. So what? Um, and how do I make that not happen? How do I give the reader? You know, what, and there's various ways to do this. It could be simply suspense. It could be just a fascinating character or or, you know, the world you're bringing to life on the page is alive enough that the reader's enjoying being there. Sometimes it's simply the the pleasure of language, the way something is told. There's not just one way to keep um, the reader on the page. Or if there was, we all write murder mysteries. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there's got to be something, and I'm and I'm and I'm very audience aware and hyper audience aware as I get near what I think is the final two or three drafts or something. In uh, in the book, you also uh, you sort of allude to how some uh, a lot a lot of your students they have this. There's a, a phase in their process where all they're doing is like talking about this book that they have in, in their head. So a lot of people, they've got this perfect vision in their head, but then ultimately you got to sit down and get real acquainted with how ugly the process is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I wonder, like, how do you get those people from the talk about phase to putting them, putting them in the chair and getting them 
to sort of divorce the perfect vision in their head and get some work done and get the yeah. work done? How do you get there? Um, I don't always. I mean, that's mm-hmm. and I can't do it for them. I mean, uh, I talk to them about it. I, I think there's a, a, a lot of uh, power in writers like you and me and, and, and other writers much more accomplished, you know, just saying to younger writers, guess what? <laughs> it's a slog. <laughs> guess what? It's hard. You know, guess what? This isn't my first draft. This is this is my forty third draft. It's written to, that's very deliberately constructed to sound fresh, as if it were a first draft. But it doesn't happen that way. So it's you know, it's a little bit of, of of psychological coaching or just you know being a friend to younger writers. And the younger writers could be older than me, but not by younger I mean newer to the process. Um, you know, a certain amount of just saying, guess what? You know, all those insecurities you have, Stephen King has them too. I have them too. Joan Didion has them. Um, You know what? All those deep concerns you have that you might fail, yeah, you might. But so what? Mm -hmm. And you put away and you start another project. Um, I I think just sort of helping people work through the bad inner voices, the insecurities, the fear of failure – and and giving them permission or, or encouraging them to give themselves permission to not be a genius. You know, if, if I mean, I've read writers who sit down and they write something and they look at it and go, well, I'm not a genius. So I guess I won't ever do this again. <laughs> um, I, I, I just, I mean, I'm not a genius. I'm a guy who works real hard at my writing and I've been lucky to have some editors who publish what I write. Um, so it, it's, it's, how do I get people to stop talking about the writing and actually do it? I think it's getting them over that, that initial hump. And then some of them do it. And I'm amazed, I, you know, what they show me a week later, or I run into them at a conference five years later and man, they've really taught themselves to become much more um, powerful and dedicated writers than they were when I first met them. And then sometimes, you know, people sit down and, and get started and say, this is too hard. And they stop, and I can't fix that for them. Right. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they were meant to do something else. That's fine, by the way. You don't have to be a writer. That's not a. That's not a. If you if you try to write something and then you give up halfway through, you know that's, that doesn't make you a failure as a human being. It might mean might mean you're a failure as a writer, but it might just mean you're a failure on that particular project, and you're going to find another project six months later. But it doesn't make you a failure as a human being. It's just it's just writing. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not your self-worth that's on the line here. Though a lot of people think it is, especially yeah. if they're writing personal stories. If they're writing a novel that's very much based on their family or their life or their marriage, or they're writing a memoir that by definition is very much very personal and based on their own experience, you know, they do sometimes feel like their whole purpose as a human being on this planet is online, on the line. It's not. You know, you're, you're trying to write a book, and a book's really hard, and... All we're going to determine at the end of a year is whether you were able to write that a good first draft of that book. We're not going to determine whether you're a successful human being or not. You know, be good to your family. That defines a successful human being. Right. I think you made a just a, an important um, an important note in that you're like, oh, I, I might be on draft forty three, and I think that's I think that in itself is very enlightening to someone who thinks that it has to be 
good after even after two or three passes. Right. You rarely ever hear anyone talk about like double digit drafts or double digit pass throughs of of something. And I know that's for the things I've written. I mean, I'm in the several dozens of rereads all through beginning to end trying to move this that the other prune big limbs small limbs this that and the other so like to hear yeah to hear you say like yeah it's 40 40 drafts like that's not uncommon that's how you work i think that i think that in terms will maybe lighten the bear or like sort of make the barrier to go through those drafts more more porous for for people to work through it that help it's helpful to me because It's kind of repeating some of what I said earlier, maybe. If I'm on my fourth draft of a 20-page essay, although I wouldn't have 20 pages by my fourth draft, I'm still struggling with the first five pages, maybe. And when I look at it and I go, God, this is some really obvious ideas in here expressed in really flat sentences. And and there's just no there there. Hmm. Um, I don't panic. It's like, yeah, that's kind of what these early drafts are like. And I know I have another 30 drafts before I'm going to get it in any sort of a shape to show an editor. Um, that's that's the kind patience. It's a freedom in that, though. You know, the, you can, you can, it's a glass half full, glass half empty. Oh, my God, 40 drafts. That's so much work. I'm so discouraged. How could I ever do 40 drafts of anything? Well, flip that on, you know, flip that upside down. It was like, man doesn't matter if my fourth draft sucks i got 35 more drafts i did the math wrong right right there but you know i got dozens of 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 more drafts to write where i know i'm going to get it right i know i'm going to find something interesting tomorrow i know if i just push it this by friday i'm gonna have pages of interesting material it's okay if it's not working right now that's the kind of the freedom that that goes with being a a, a, you know a, a bull of a reviser it's like where you were saying you know, how you chose to view David Bradley's feedback as the gift that it was to you, you know, years ago. Yeah. It's like it's like, oh, this is I get to do more. This you just unlocked more possibilities. Just like I get to write more drafts. Like it's a it's a great it's a great way to spin it. You didn't tie your value to that feedback. It was the work and he was actually trying to just make you a better worker and yeah. yeah so it made you better so you you didn't you weren't personally slighted you were like oh great this is the gift that it is yeah i mean it's like you know i, I like to use the tennis metaphor sometimes it's like if i can't did you if you i don't know if you play tennis but let's pretend you don't if i took you out to the the tennis court and handed you a racket and started lobbing balls towards you very easy soft balls that were right you know right where they needed to be it, it still kind of swat at them and miss most of them and hit the ones that you do hit into the net. Um, and some people give up, I guess. They say, I don't mm-hmm. like tennis, you know, but if, if you had at least any interest in tennis, you'd go back the next day and try again. And eventually you'd like hit two balls back across the net and go, Oh, 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 I get it. You know? And then you'd work at it and work at it and you might not get to the Wimbledon, but after like a couple of months of, of hitting tennis balls three times a week, you're suddenly like hitting tennis balls. And then if you're hungry for it, you say, okay, how do I get to hit tennis balls really well? Um, you know, that's kind of the process of becoming a better writer. You aren't born. I mean, it would be a shame if the first short story I ever wrote and took into David Bradley's workshop at Temple University in Philadelphia, you know, if that was like 
proof of what I was capable of. Well, it wasn't proof of what I was capable of. It's actually was really minuscule, early, flawed, um, amateur work. And David Bradley showed me that, you know, just come out here and, and let me show you how to hold the racket and let me show you, you know, where to put your feet. And you can actually improve your own tennis stroke to where you're actually going to hit some tennis balls. And your in your own tennis stroke, whether that be, you know, a, a, a two-handed backhand or or backhand slice or heavy heavy top spin, that in a, in and of itself is like sort of tennis metaphor for voice. And you you talk a lot about voice too, as like the heart story in the beginning, and then towards the middle, it's like all right, this tricky thing that's voice and how to cultivate it is um is is sort of a it's a question that's always on the forefront of a lot of you know writers and teachers i'm sure so like you know maybe how did you develop your voice and how can people practice those tennis strokes to get to a point where it's it's no longer copying and piecemeal but it is something that is wholly sort of original to the person right right well first of all a voice doesn't have to be wholly original to the person i mean Mm -hmm. it's do sound alike um, some right. people, some tennis, some tennis players, you watch them and say, you know, man, that Andre Agassi, that his game is so different than anybody else's game. But you watch a lot of tennis players, and and they look like they're doing some of the same same things. Yeah, especially uh, true for golf. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, boy, my goodness, yes, um, they're like robots yeah. to the guys at the top of their game and the, and the ladies. Um, let's get off sports for a minute. Uh, <laughs> voice, voice, voice is really hard. Uh, to talk about and teach, you know, I don't want to be one of those one of those teachers who says, "Well, you know, you'll know it when you see it." Um, that's a very unsatisfying answer. <laughs> I can I, I'll begin by talking about myself while I while I panic in the background trying to think if I can say something smart about <laughs> how I teach this to other people. I acquired my own voice by sort of returning to it. Like many, many writers, when I started writing serious work, you know, with a serious tone, I didn't sound like myself. I kept trying to sound like somebody else. I tried, tried to sound more authoritative than I am. I tried to sound more um, more learned than I am. I tried to sound more literary than I am. And eventually I just sort of said, yeah, you know, didn't he, you, you, you know, you've got a way of telling stories when you're talking to your friends. Um, maybe that's the way you should tell stories when you're talking to the page. It's a little bit of a conceit. You obviously, when I'm talking to my friends, I'm interrupting myself and humming and awing and, and rambling around in a way that my friends just stick around because they're my friends or because I'm buying the beer. And when I'm (laughs) writing on the page, I need to, I need to be aware of cleaning it up and making it flow aware of the, you know, aware of the rhythm or where am I? constricting the river and where am I widening the river but still it's 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 kind of telling a story fiction or nonfiction again I don't think I mean there are differences between fiction and nonfiction God knows but this idea of voice there's not a big difference there um, telling the story the way you would tell a story to a really good friend um, emphasizing and spending time on the things that really matter to you uh, using the expressions that you used or heard people use in that small town in Indiana where you grew up, not trying to sound like you went to Harvard unless you went to Harvard. Um, 
that you know to me voice to me my own voice sort of came when I got comfortable enough with um, being myself on the page being a version of myself on the page you know you have to I'm I hope I know I'm more articulate articulate on the page than I am in person because I revise those sentences right I, I've done I've, I've, I've had so much repetition in this in this in this interview so far and if you know and if it was going to be published I'd go back and, and take the repetition out because that's what you have the the privilege and an opportunity to do in writing but you know just just relax and and be yourself and use the phrasing that that makes sense to you and you don't want to use language so obscure that you lose the reader but actually a little bit of you know the weirdness of of your central indiana small town way of speaking gives 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 flavor to your writing and, and the reader enjoys that how to how to push other people towards their voice um is again kind of pointing maybe just pointing a finger at, at where where the where the writing stiffens mm-hmm. and and pointing a finger at no 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 right here look see what you did right there that's actually very alive on the page can you do more of that mm. You tell a joke on page five. Why did it take five pages for you to lighten up and tell a joke? Or, or you, you know, or you're being very vulnerable on page five. Let's say it's not a funny piece. You feel really human, and you're expressing, you know, you're expressing your own doubt on page five. Why did it take you five pages to get there? Let's let's start in that place. Hmm. And uh, taking a little um, a little side side road, I wanted to like briefly talk about you know this. Sorry for the pun. Briefly talk about brevity, um, and and like, what was the motivation to founding an online journal that was, you know, focused on a seven hundred fifty word or shorter essay? I never imagined we're, we're celebrating our twentieth year. Wow. Uh, I knew it was a while. I didn't realize twenty. September it'll be our twentieth year of publishing. Um, I never imagined it would be around for more than a year and a half. I can remember very deliberately thinking, well, yeah, I'll do this as a little bit of a lark. Uh, the, what we called the World Wide Web back then mm-hmm. uh, was very new. So web pages were, you know, there were only, you know, there were, there were like a couple thousand web pages out there, not, not 400 trillion web, web pages. So I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to see if I can teach myself how to make a website. And why don't I make this magazine? And play with that for a year and learn something about how websites work. The that was the idea of starting the magazine, as um, as clueless as I was. The, the idea of, of brevity and 750 words was because I was reading a lot of flash fiction. And there were a number of flash fiction anthologies that came out in the, the 1980s and 1990s, and this was the later 1990s that I started brevity. And I was inspired by all the energy behind flash fiction, 1,000-word stories or 500-word stories or 750-word stories. So I thought, well, maybe we could do this with nonfiction, too. I wonder how that would work. And doesn't it make sense for an online journal to have short pieces because nobody's going to want to read 16, a 16-page story on a computer screen? So those ideas kind of came together imperfectly. I certainly didn't have a master plan. Uh, I certainly didn't, you know, see into the future that it would become a magazine that um, people talked about and had so many readers, international, an international audience, and and have all the good things that have happened since. Yeah, the 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 boundary of it is 
is part of its appeal. Like, can you, like, I probably a lot of us have a thousand, fifteen hundred word, two thousand word essays just in the drawer kicking around, and it's like, well, that 750 words is like some of the best editor you can have. It's like, how can I squeeze out this stuff and fit it into that, that form without losing, without f- feeling like we're missing something? It's often like the best friend you can have is to say, well, you have no choice but to cut this by 50 or 60%. And, you know, it's a great tool and a great ally to have that kind of constriction. Yeah. And when you go back to write your 3,000 word essay, you go back to write your full length book what you learned and about your own writing and in struggling to cut your thing down to 750 words is, you know, that, that's, that can be that I'm repeating what you said. I think that, that you learn a lot about your own writing in the process of, of editing it down to such a small, small space. Um, you know, that, that you, you asked very early on about self editing. That's certainly a good way to learn mm-hmm. self editing is to take a, take a piece and say, I'm going to cut out every word that doesn't need to be here. And I'm going to, you know, figure out a way to express an idea once and then move on. Um, because, you know, in, in flash work and very short, like poetry, uh, this is true of poetry too, but in very short prose, you know, every sentence has to not just deliver a message, but every sentence has to be doing two or three things at once. It's building character. It's creating the rhythm of the narrative. It's giving a little bit of mood or setting. It's it's beginning to construct the the overall metaphor of the piece. You look at a really good flash prose, and you know each sentence is constructed to do multiple things, and then they all link together, and then you know, poof, like magic. Though it's not magic; it's a lot, a lot, a lot of hard work. Um, poof, like magic, it all falls together, and it seems like an inevitably perfect seven hundred word story. And with the the story cure, like what what itch was that scratching that you were like, all right, the, I want to package this as as a as a way to be the the book doctor and diagnose these uh, a lot of these problems in in prose to ultimately like make someone a better novelist or memoirist. Like, so where were you and like why you know why did yeah like I said like what what was the itch that this book was scratching for you? So I'm a I, I'm a college professor. I teach and have for many years taught both fiction and nonfiction writing to college kids. And I've written a craft book or two that, you know, it's kind of aimed at that audience. Like, here's what a scene is. Here's what an image is. Here's what a metaphor is, you know, these sort of things. Um, but I also, over the summer, more and more, I've been lucky enough to get invited. I teach at the Kenyan Review Summer Writers Workshop. It's a week-long workshop every summer. And the students tend to be in their 30s 40s 50s they're accomplished people um not college kids but you know they they want to be writers they have projects they're working on um kenyan is just one of them I'm, i've done it you know different places up in vermont i've done it uh, down in georgia different summer conferences uh and that audience is very different they need they need they're not they're not naive they probably took creative writing classes in college though now they're you know scientists or lawyers or doctors or small business people or you know whatever they're doing in their lives they, they know the basics but they don't quite know how to sustain those basics for a, a longer project so these people will come to me with three chapters of their memoir and like i don't know how to get to chapter four 
or they'll come to me with a completely written first draft of their memoir and, or, or novel and say, you know, I know some stuff is working here and I know some stuff isn't working here. And I showed it to a few agents and they went, meh, well, what do I do now? So I, I kind of took the years of the many years, many summers of teaching in these various workshops where people were in the middle of book projects, um, but didn't quite know how to get from where they were to the next, the next major step of the, of the process. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I thought I'll collect all of that. It's so for a different audience. And, you know, and that's kind of the audience for this book. I hope is people who, um, understand, you know, they, they're readers, they understand, you know, what the basics of a story are. They may have taken some writing workshops uh, two years ago or 22 years ago. So they kind of know what dialogue is and they know all the basics that we teach, you know, at a sophomore level creative writing class. Um, but they don't know how to write a book. They don't know how to tackle a project that's going to excite them and break their heart again and again and again, you know, over the course of two years. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to try to get that information that I've been sharing in the classroom and sharing one-on-one, -on -one, working with, with people, trying to get that into a book form and see where that leads, which is kind of, you know, but most of my projects are, I'm going to try to do this and see where it leads. Um, not, not, uh, I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. I never know exactly what I'm doing. Sometimes yeah. after I pretended I knew exactly what I was doing, but if you were in my office hearing me mutter to myself as I write, you'd understand quickly. I don't know exactly <laughs> what I'm doing most of the time. I think the the book has so much value for for the novice looking to start, or someone who's more seasoned who just needs to get across the goal line. And uh, I noticed that a lot of the tabs I put in here, the several several dozen, like it's it's like oh yeah, like I know I can apply that to this thing I've got in the drawer. And like this might get it over the goal line, and and so it's uh it's it's got everything for no matter how long you've been doing it or how yeah or how little you've been doing it. So it's uh it's just like a great little a great handbook to keep on your shelf and to pick out and be like oh yeah that's how to diagnose this this little uh, malady in, in the piece. So if you weren't three time zones away from me right now, I'd come over and give you a hug. It's <laughs> a very nice praise. Well, fantastic. Well, virtual, virtual hugs from, from the yeah. West coast. So, uh, but Denti, I'll let you get out of here. Right? Thank you so much for carving out an hour of your morning. This was a lot of fun for me and uh, people are going to get a lot out of this. I think. Thank you, Brendan. Yeah, you're very welcome. Take care. Okay. All right. So long. Bye-bye.